Last week, we began hearing Jesus' words in Matthew 6 and the way that he addressed the motives of our hearts. It wasn't the acts of righteousness he was critiquing or even the locations where we gave to the needy and prayed. Rather, the question he called us to ask ourselves was, who are you doing these things for? Who is your audience? Are you living your life to be seen by other people and praised by them? Or are you living your life in the sight of your heavenly Father, seeking the reward of His commendation and His praise? Jesus is calling us to a righteousness that isn't hypocritical and surface righteousness, that pretends to be living for God but is really trying to be liked by others. Instead, He is calling us to give our whole lives to Him and to look to the true reward of pleasing our Heavenly Father. Jesus gave three examples of this principle, and we looked at the first two last week, giving to the needy and prayer. Today, we're going to look at the final example, fasting, and the three summary statements that Jesus gives about living in this way. We've already said this morning that this week is the beginning of the season of Lent in the church calendar. And Lent is often closely associated with fasting. But since those things have been abused and often misunderstood at various times and places in the history of the church, I want us to think about fasting today in light of what Jesus says in this whole passage. So we're going to read again all of verses 1 through 24, but then we'll focus in on verses 16 through 24. Before we hear God's word, though, let's ask for his help. Would you all pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we read your holy word, I ask that you would give us your spirit of wisdom and revelation, that we might know and love your Son, Jesus Christ, more. Open our minds, our hearts, and our wills so that we may hear your word and believe it. Speak, Holy Spirit. Your people are listening. Amen. This is Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 1. Jesus says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think they will be heard by their... Be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. 
Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is the word of the Lord. So we look through the passage, we're going to begin with those three summary statements in verses 19 through 24 about treasures, eyes, and masters. And then we're going to go back to verses 16 through 18 and look at Christian fasting as hunger for God. Jesus ends this portion in Matthew 6 with these three summary statements But because they're summary statements that kind of seem a bit disjointed, I want to begin there so that we can see all that Jesus is saying and then use that as a rubric, as a lens to go back and see what it is he says about fasting. Because it's there that he's going to peel back the layers of our lives and show us why it is that we do what we do. So let's read first verses 19 through 21 where Jesus tells us about treasures. He says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy, and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. These verses are a summary of verses 1 through 18. The the question from the very beginning of verse 1, and in each of those examples was which reward are you going to choose? The one that comes from man, which is on the earth, or the one that comes from God, which is in heaven? Jesus has shown us in all three examples that you only get one of the two rewards. If you live like the hypocrites for the praise of the people around you, you will probably get it, but that's all that you will get. And so he calls us instead to live before the face of God and to live for the secret praise, the secret reward of our Father who is in heaven. Now, in these verses, he tells us what we already assumed, that the heavenly reward is better than the earthly reward. 
he says that uh, that earthly treasure will not last. The elements of time can take it away slowly. Moths slowly eating your costly clothes or rust slowly eroding your precious metals. Or it can be gone in the blink of an eye as fast as a thief breaks in to steal it. Time and sin will take away every one of your earthly treasures. Notice that Jesus expands the rewards that we seek in this life to more than just the praise of man that we saw in verses 1 through 18. Now he's talking about our stuff. Nothing, he says, will remain. You may have worked tirelessly for your own physical beauty, but time and the decay of the body won't let 70 look like 20. You may have built up all your savings and wealth just where you wanted it, only to see the stock market crash in a matter of days. Your money, your house, your reputation, your success, none of your earthly treasures will last. But the heavenly treasure cannot be touched. Jesus says the exact opposite about it. In heaven, neither moth nor rust destroys, destroys, and thieves do not break in and steal. The point is not that Jesus is collecting a bunch more stuff for us in heaven. Like you have a mansion up over the hilltop that is somehow resistant to rust. The point, like last week, is that all your good, all your treasure is wrapped up in God. He is your reward. Listen to the way that Paul says it in Colossians 3. He says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. All of your praise, all of your joy, all of your satisfaction, your very life is hidden with Christ If you are a Christian, live like your life is hidden with Christ, unable to be taken by the troubles of this world. If you are not a Christian, think about how brief and fleeting the treasures of this world are, and then go to Jesus to find the only true and lasting treasure. In the next section, Jesus makes this stark statement, or rather right before he gets to the next section, in verse 21, he says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And it leads us right into the next summary statement of verses 22 and 23. Read those with me again. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Why does Jesus start talking about our eyes here? He says that the eye is the lamp of the body. It was thought to be the entry point for light into the body. 
And so think about the connection from what he has just said to what he is saying here. Your eye is the organ of evaluation for your body. Your eye judges what is good and what is bad. It determines what is valuable and what is not, what is worthwhile and what can be passed over. Jesus is calling us to use our eyes for eternal judgment, Christian discernment when it comes to treasure and reward. If your eye judges fleeting pleasures to be valuable, your whole body will be taken over by them. You will give your heart, your love, your affections to those things that you deem most important, the most valuable. This is what he has been training us to see since the very beginning of this Sermon on the Mount. Who is the blessed person in verses 1 through 12? Who is living the good life? It's the one who mourns. The one who is meek and poor in spirit. Even the one who is persecuted. Why? It's because their treasure isn't confined to the earth. It is the eternal treasure of heaven. The rich and happy who reject God get fame and pleasure for 80 years and then eternity in hell. The one who trusts in Jesus may be poor and suffering in this life, but they get fellowship with God now and in eternity. Jesus is calling us to make the better choice, the better evaluation. And then he pulls back one more layer in verse 24. He says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Jesus switches the metaphor again. The picture is now of a slave serving his master. Again, Jesus says, there are only two choices. You cannot have one foot in each camp. You will either serve the triune God of heaven, or you will serve money. The word Jesus uses is actually the word mammon. There's another Greek word he could have used for money, but instead he uses this word that generally means wealth, stuff, things. Either your master will be God, or your master will be your stuff. Everything Jesus has spoken of now takes on a different light. The praise of man is not just a cheap reward. It is a slave master. If you live for the praise and acclaim of other people, you will do whatever it takes to keep getting it. If you live for success in your job, it will run your life. If you live for physical pleasure or perfect kids or ease and comfort, your everyday decisions will be dictated by whether you have those things or not. They will be your master. I've shared this quote with you before from Martin Luther, the 16th century German reformer. He says, whatever your heart clings to and confides in, that is really your God. That is Jesus' summary of all 
of these things that he has said. Notice that every one of those that he has spoken of is binary, like a light switch, either on or off. You will either live for the praise of man or of your heavenly Father. You will either store up treasure on earth or in heaven. You will either have a bad eye that evaluates poorly or a good eye that evaluates rightly. And you will either serve stuff or God. If you are a Christian, if you trust in Jesus, then your life is hidden with Christ in heaven. You don't have to be a slave to the stuff of this world anymore. Your joy and your comfort and your hope are secure in Him. So you are freed from the anxieties and pressures the world has because your life is not confined to this world. And so that brings us back to Jesus' final example in the three examples of verses 1 to 18. Fasting. These summaries Jesus has given us help us now to understand what fasting is and what it isn't. Let's begin by reading verses 16 to 18. He says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces and their fa- that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus uses this same pattern that he's used throughout chapter 6. First, he tells us about the hypocrites and the way that they fast and the reward that they will receive. Then he tells us about us and how we are called to fast as Christians and what our reward is. But different than the other two examples, I think it is a surprise for us that Jesus mentions fasting here. Because by and large, we do not fast. We don't think of of fasting as a Christian activity. So because Jesus says, when you fast, not if you fast. I want us to think a bit about what fasting is not meant to be, what it is meant to be, and how we should fast as Christians. The simple definition of fasting is not eating for a time. In the Old Testament, God's people did this when they were in mourning over some tragedy. They also did it as a sign of repentance and sorrow over their sin. And it was often, if not always, joined with prayer. It was a renewal of devotion to God. Jesus fasted in the wilderness for 40 days in Matthew 4, when he was tempted by Satan. He says here, not if you fast, but when you fast. A little later in Matthew 9, he says that his disciples weren't fasting then because he was with them. But when he left, they would fast out of longing for his return. Christians are shown fasting several times in the book of Acts, and Paul actually shows us that fasting is not always about food. In 1 Corinthians 7, when he says that a husband and wife may agree to fast from sex for a time so that they can devote themselves to prayer together. 
So fasting is a decidedly Christian activity, and even though it is usually about food, fasting can be refraining from other things too. So we've seen what fasting is, and that we should do it, but why should we do it? Why would a Christian fast? What is the point? What are we trying to accomplish? First, I want us to see two things that are not reasons for us to fast. The first one is that we do not fast as a way to reject God's good gifts. There's a false asceticism, a hatred of natural things, sometimes even among Christians, that says that we are better off if we strip away as many worldly pleasures and comforts as we can. Fasting is not a rejection of those legitimate pleasures and comforts. Paul actually warns us about that kind of rejection in 1 Timothy 4. He says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times, some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. Food and sex between a husband and wife and wine, and sweet-tasting treats, and all kinds of things are good gifts from God. What we are doing in fasting is not rejecting or forbidding those good gifts. Secondly, we are also not fasting as a way to get God to listen to us, or to curry His favor. Sometimes people treat fasting as a way to force God to answer our prayers or desires. Israel even slipped into this way of thinking about fasting. In Isaiah 58, Isaiah says that Israel is upset with God because he isn't responding to their fasting. They say, why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? The simple answer is, what a terrible misunderstanding of how God works. Where in Scripture do we see God ask us to perform a list of deeds so that He will pay attention to us? Where do we see Him tell us to obey and then He'll answer our requests? No, remember what we saw in verses 5 to 15 rather about prayer. If God doesn't need impressive phrases or incantations to pay attention to our prayers, he certainly doesn't need fasting either. Fasting is not a way to twist God's arm to get him to do what we want. So if we don't fast to reject God's good gifts, and we don't fast to secure God's favor, why do we fast? What is the right reason for fasting? The most helpful place to find an answer is in Jesus' own fasting in Matthew 4. After not eating for 40 days, Satan tempts Jesus to turn a stone into bread. The way that Jesus fights this temptation is by quoting from Deuteronomy 8, verse 3. He says, Man shall not live by bread alone, 
but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. In that, we see that fasting is not a denial of satisfaction. It is a redirection of our satisfaction. When we fast, we aren't restricting our joy. We are setting our joy on the only truly secure place for our joy. That is on God. God is the true nourishment, the true satisfaction for the Christian. David says in Psalm 16, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It is in God Himself that we find our true pleasure and happiness. This is the cry of David again in Psalm 63 when he is in the wilderness of Judah. He says, O God, You are my God. Earnestly I seek You. My soul thirsts for You. My flesh faints for You as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise You with joyful lips when I remember You upon my bed and meditate on You in the watches of the night. Brothers and sisters, God has made us to find our joy and our satisfaction in Him. So fasting is not a denial of pleasure. It is finding our pleasure in God. But it is also a recognition that sometimes God's good gifts can numb us to the goodness of God. Jesus doesn't say that he doesn't need bread. He doesn't say that there's something inherently wrong with bread. No, he says that bread is not the most important thing for the life of a person. Bread is not ultimate. God is ultimate. Fasting doesn't reject God's good gifts, but it does recognize that our desires and longings for God's good gifts can become distorted. Even as Christians, we can begin to treat God's gifts like they will satisfy the desires of our hearts. So many sins are distorted desire for something good that God has given us. Gluttony is a distorted desire for food. Sloth or laziness is a distorted desire for rest. Drunkenness is a distorted desire for alcohol. And we often use those things to comfort us when we ought to find comfort in God. How often do we numb our feeling of dissatisfaction by flipping on the TV? How often do we calm our anxiety with a glass of wine? How often do you deal with frustration by going to the pantry? All of these things take God's good gifts that He gave us to enjoy, and treats them as ultimate. What fasting does is trains us to put those things back in their proper order. Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Fasting reminds us of that by setting aside bread for a time and satisfying our hunger on God Himself. It says with our body what we say, that we, what we say we believe of Jesus when He says, I am the bread of life. 
Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. It sets aside sweets for a time to remind ourselves that the law of the Lord is sweeter than honey, and the drippings of the honeycomb. Fasting sets aside sex for a time to say that our marriage is not at the end of the day most dependent upon sex, but on seeking the face of God together. John Piper, in his wonderful book, A Hunger for God, shows how joy for God and intentional fasting fit together. He says, Christian fasting is not only the spontaneous effect of a superior satisfaction in God. Like we are enraptured in reading our Bibles and we forget to go and eat. It is also a chosen, deliberate weapon against every force in the world that would take that satisfaction away. True fasting is a weapon against our unruly desires. It reminds us that though God's gifts are good, they are not ultimate. God alone is ultimate. He is the true satisfaction of our souls. So the final question is, how do we fast as Christians? How do we fast without falling into the error of the Pharisees and making fasting about something other than God? First, a practical help, and then a direction of the heart. Practically, we do well when we take fasting in strides. When you get online and you look up a training regimen for a couch to 5K, it doesn't say that you tie up your running shoes and run a 5K on the first day. No, you start small, little by little. If you have never fasted before, don't decide you won't have sweets, bread, coffee, or alcohol for all of Lent. You're going to fast for two days, and you're going to miss the whole point of fasting. Choose one, and whenever the sting of desire comes upon you, pray. Pull out your Bible and read Psalm 16 or Psalm 63. Train yourself little by little to find your satisfaction in God. Secondly, the direction of our hearts. We truly fast as Christians, not just when we refrain from food or drink or TV. We truly fast as Christians when we turn our hearts and our desires to finding joy in God. This is one of the things that Jesus is critiquing in the Pharisees. J.C. Ryle says, Let us learn from our Lord's instruction about fasting, the great importance of cheerfulness in our religion. Those words, anoint thy head and wash thy face, are full of deep meaning. Are we dissatisfied with Christ's wages and Christ's service? Surely not. Then let us not look as if we were. Christian fasting should be cheerful. It won't be easy every moment of every day. Denying yourself is painful and frustrating at times. But it is not about denying joy. It is about choosing the better joy. And this brings us right back to Jesus' summary statements. Does your eye work correctly? Is it evaluating true and lasting pleasure 
rightly. When you look at the treasures of the earth, do you see them for what they are? Fine and good things, even gifts from God to be enjoyed, but things that will not ultimately last or satisfy you. Christian fasting is not about twisting God's arm to get Him to do something for us. And it's not about denying the good gifts of God. It is a weapon in our hands to teach us where our treasure is as Christians. It is a reminder that your life is hidden with Christ and only at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. John Piper, drawing on this choosing the better treasure, says over every Christian fast should be written the words of Philippians 3.8. I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He is your true reward. He is the satisfaction of your soul. Would you all pray with me? Father, we praise you that you are worthy. You are better than everything this world has to offer. Would you forgive us when we choose wrongly, when we choose the cheap and short-lived things of the earth? And would you give us fortitude? Would you give us right vision to see rightly that you are the chief of all pleasures, you are the chief of all joys and all satisfaction? And would we run to you again and again? It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.